So let's get into it. Um, so we, we did talk about cells a little bit already when we, were, when we did our last unit on, on microbiology, but of course at that point we were talking about um, bacterial cells and, and some fungi and some other types of organisms. Here we're of course going to talk about uh, more human cells. And there will of course be some similarities between some of the stuff we saw uh, in the previous units and this one, um, but uh, obviously some differences as well. So. <laughs> when we define uh, what a living organism is, um, basically the, the, the simplest definition is it's something that's made up of cells. So it's the most basic you know, functional unit of life. So there can be, as we saw in the, in the micro unit, you know, single-celled organisms. There can be small multicellular organisms. And then we can have big, complex multicellular organisms like ourselves. Um, ultimately, if, I mean, if you're going to have a, a multicellular organism, um, then you're going to need a, a pretty significant level of coordination to occur. So that each cell has to do a particular job and do it properly, and then you need tissues collectively in, in bunches and groups in an organized fashion to be able to work as a collective unit. We call those things tissues or organ systems. And then you have an even bigger organizational level where you have multiple tissues and organ systems all organized together in a way that makes one cohesive, functional, uh, living being. Okay, um, so um, there are some other kind of elements to how you describe what life is and, and what cells do, <laughs> in the sense that um, cells need to be able to reproduce, right? and so cells can't come from well, cells in theory can't come from nothing. Cells have to essentially arise from pre-existing cells that reproduced. Um, <clears throat> if you look at what kind of cells are present in the human body, <coughs> there are all sorts of different types of cells. I mean, there are a couple of hundred uh, unique types of cells, and they're all varying sizes and shapes and, and functions. Um, so there are some similar, uh, some common elements amongst all of them, but then, of course, there are some things that make them very, very much different from one another. So here are a, a few, just a few examples of what that might look like, right? You can have, you know, simple examples of something like a, a fat cell. Fat cells are kind of globular, more or less round-ish. Um, they have a few organelles in them, but they're basically just kind of storage vessels, and they store mostly triglycerides and other lipids um, for use later on. Uh, you could have, um, maybe you've seen red blood cells. They're kind of a different shape. Red blood cells, they float around in the blood. Their job is to transport oxygen because they carry hemoglobin. So they're more or less just packed full of a particular kind of uh, uh, protein. Um, <clears throat> but they have this kind of round, biconcave disc shape, and that's important for them because that increases the surface area of the cell. And their job is, to, is, to, is gas exchange, to transport oxygen, so that makes sense for them. Um, we have epithelial cells. We'll talk about this kind of thing in the, in the tissues unit, but epithelial cells that are, some of them are flat, some of them are kind of cube-shaped, some of them are kind of um, tall, like column-shaped, um, and they all perform differing functions. And we see different types of cells in different tissues depending on what exact function it is we need them to do. Um, we have uh, muscle cells. Skeletal muscle cells are... Um, unique. They're quite long, right? They're very, very much, much bigger and longer than you know, any of those other cells we just described. And they also have some unique elements to them because they have not only a ton of contractile proteins that are able to, to uh, create force and shorten, but they also have many, many nuclei. So you typically think of a cell as having one nucleus, but these big muscle cells have a pile of different nuclei. Some cells don't have any nuclei. Red blood cells, for example, we already talked about them briefly, but they are one of the cells that don't, a mature red blood cell doesn't have a nucleus at all. And we'll talk about it with all those, what all those things are, right? the nucleus and all the organelles in a little bit. Um, consider how different that looks from something like a neuron. Right? Um, we, in this class, are not going to do um, much in the way of, of nervous system anatomy, but, um, but the real basics, um, there, I mean, there are a few different way, uh, uh, types of neurons and, and ways that these things can look, but a general idea of a neuron is it's got a cell body over here where the nucleus is. It's got these little tentacle-like things called dendrites that take information in, and it's going to be able to send an electrical signal down a long projection called an axon 
to somewhere else where it's going to communicate with either another neuron or a gland or, or another type of cell uh, and in this way it carries messages but the nature of what it does essentially dictates that it's got to have this shape that makes it very very long so much 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 different than some of your other cell types and with cells that move sperm cell for example has a big long tail um, called a flagella that allows its motility so that it can move and, and find its way to, uh, to be able to, to fertilize an egg. So uh, the point is that there, <laughs> there's many other um, uh, examples as well, and they're all very much different dependent on what it is that their function actually is. So let's talk about some more general ideas and things that, uh, things that are common for the vast majority of, uh, of all cells. Okay. So three basic parts that, that are similar to, to the vast majority of human cells is one, they have a cell membrane. Okay, so the membrane is, um, it's, we talked about, we talked briefly about cell membranes with bacteria, right? Bacteria have cell membranes, but they also have a cell wall. So this extra barrier outside of the membrane. Human cells do not have that, none of them do, okay? Um, fungal cells have it, plant cells have it, bacterial cells have it, but human cells do not. <laughs> so what we do have is just this membrane, uh, and we'll learn more about it uh, today. They're not rigid, they're fairly flexible, depending on the, the composition and what makes them up. And some of what makes up this membranes we've already actually talked about in the chemistry unit, because uh, it's largely um, what are called phospholipids. We had a question on the test that we just reviewed there about it. Um, <coughs> So that's the barrier that makes the outer boundary of a cell. Um, inside the cell membrane, uh, so basically the inner part of the, part of the cell, we're going to have uh, the cytoplasm. So <clears throat> intracellular, right, I-N-T-R-A, that means within the cell, inside the cell. So that we have cytoplasm that is going to be mostly made of water with a whole bunch of stuff dissolved and contained or, uh, within it or suspended within it. Uh, and that's also where we're going to find our cellular organelles. We're mostly going to learn about organelles next week, but organelles are specialized structures inside the cell that perform particular tasks. So those are things you've probably heard of before, things like mitochondria for making energy and ribosomes for making proteins, and so we'll talk about the nucleus and real basic cell biology kind of stuff. Okay? <laughs> and then the vast majority <coughs> of, human, of human cells excuse me, <coughs> will have a nucleus. And the importance of the nucleus is that's where we collect uh, and store the DNA uh, for the purposes of um, transcription and translation for making proteins, right? Which is all the this, this is largely what cells do, uh, and um, also for the purposes of reproduction. So cells can can divide and reproduce and make other cells. Now there are a couple of exceptions to that rule, and, and the big one, that more, most common one, is, is one that we already mentioned. Not all mature cells in the body have nuclei. Red blood cells, for example, don't. They do when they're developing, but then as they mature and get filled up with mostly hemoglobin, then the nucleus disappears. Okay? But that's an exception rather than the rule. Here's kind of an artist's depiction of the kinds of organelles that you might find inside the cell. Okay, so of course we have the barrier around the outside, we have the, the cell membrane, right, plasma membrane, and then inside we, we're going to see a bunch of things. So some cells might have all of these things, some cells might just have some of these things. Um, just a general depiction of what there might be. So purple here, we have the cent generally centrally located nucleus. It contains uh, a compact nucleolus in the middle. It's got DNA. Um, we have our organelles, things like endoplasmic reticulum, uh, rough and smooth, ribosomes, mitochondria, um, Golgi apparatus, lysosomes, centrioles, matrix, uh, peroxisomes, lysosomes, things like that. So all of those we'll learn about uh, in, in next week's lecture. Okay. So let's look a little bit more about the, at the membrane <laughs> and, and some special uh, parts about it. Um, now the membrane, of course, is going to be what divides our, our, or delineates what we say is intracellular inside the cell versus everything else which is <coughs> extracellular or outside of the cells. <coughs> and when you think about what <coughs> cells in the body uh, are basically are doing or are, are, are the environment that they're living in, you're more or less going to have cells you know, packed together 
to varying degrees. And there's going to be stuff hanging around outside of them. Okay? So <coughs> how exactly that looks is going to depend on what kind of tissue you're in. So in certain tissues, the cells are very closely packed together. And certain other types of tissues, the cells are a lot more sparse and, and separated apart. <coughs> so we'll learn about some of the differences in the tissues unit of, <coughs> of the kinds of patterns that you can see that way. Now, <coughs> the kinds of things that we're going to be talking about outside of cells, again, mostly in the tissues unit, are things like fluid. Um, so there, the important uh, term to take away from this is uh, called interstitial fluid. So basically, if you were to imagine this is a group of cells in a group together in a particular tissue, all the fluid that kind of bathes the, the immediate exterior of those cells that's directly outside of them, right, is going to be called interstitial fluid. And it's important because interstitial fluid is kind of the medium through which all the <coughs> substances, nutrients, electrolytes, things that need to get in and out of the cells, they have to pass through this interstitial fluid. Right? When you talk about, for example, we know what the general idea of what blood does. Right? What's the purpose of blood? What? Sure, sure. So, so primarily red blood cells will do that kind of job. They'll, they'll take uh, oxygen to the cells and carbon dioxide away. It does a lot of other things too, right? It transports all sorts of nutrients, like we eat food and then those nutrients move into the blood and they travel around and go to all the cells of the body wherever they're needed. So it, it carries a lot more than oxygen, but, but you're right. So you know, when, you have, uh, a blood, um, when you have red blood cells that are carrying oxygen and you want to get that oxygen into the cells, it has to. It can't. Doesn't just jump directly from the red blood cells into the cells of, let's say, you know, whatever tissue that is. It has to cross a few barriers in order to get there. So it moves through diffusion from the red blood cell into the uh, into the blood, and then from the blood into the interstitial fluid, and then from the interstitial fluid into the cells that it's trying to get into. And the same thing, vice versa, for waste products getting away from the cells or any other nutrient. So we have this kind of fluid medium through which everything has to move. There are also, I mean, there are, of course, other important fluids in the body that serve similar purposes. The, the fluid portion of the blood, for example, blood plasma, right? It's largely water, and we know that water is the, you know, the most, most important solvent in the body. It's what creates all our, our fluid solutions. We have the solutes, uh, important solutes dissolved and suspended within it for uh, for um, to be able to transport them around the body. We have other fluids, of course, too, like joint fluids and um, and uh, and cerebrospinal fluid in and around the, uh, the central nervous system and a number of other specialized fluids that, that uh, act as both protective barriers and lubricants and uh, and transport vehicles to move stuff in and out of, of regions and cells. Um, we're also going to have cells that make stuff, okay, that secrete substances. Uh, so, for example, um, we'll talk at some point in the tissue section about um, exocrine secretions. So, exocrine secretions are, are um, substances that cells make that they secrete them out uh, into uh, cavities of the body or on, onto the surface of the body, things like that. So, straightforward examples would be things like mucus or saliva. Uh, uh, where the cells are specialized to make this stuff uh, and they're secreting it out onto a surface where it's required for protection or uh, lubrication or you know, whatever the case is. Now, the other thing we have to remember is that there, so there's, there's stuff outside of the cells, right? The body's not just, just cells all packed together. Um, <clears throat> the stuff outside of the cells uh, is called the extracellular matrix. So the matrix is essentially this stuff, this substance that essentially glues everything together. Now, the basic, most basic definition I can give you is this, and this is kind of a preview of the tissues unit, but um, extracellular matrix, okay, or ECM, is basically proteins plus something called ground substance. Oops. So proteins, and there's all sorts of different kinds of proteins, but things that are going to give um, uh, the matrix 
uh, either um, supportive qualities like a framework scaffolding or they might be elastic and give it some stretchiness, uh, things like that. And ground substance is usually more kind of um, chemicals and stuff that fill in spaces and give uh, tissue a particular consistency. So extracellular matrix is proteins plus ground substance. A tissue is cells plus extracellular matrix. Okay, so when you think of a tissue as a whole, it's the cells plus the matrix. And then the, in the matrix, there's a couple of different things that make that up. So those are terms that we'll, we'll see again in, uh, in the next unit. <coughs> okay, <coughs> so back to the, uh, <coughs> the cell and the plasma membrane, or cell membrane. Those terms are interchangeable. All right. Cell membrane is, is a barrier that separates inside of the cell from outside of the cell. So intracellular from extracellular. And remember that both of those things are full of fluid. So inside the cell, we have it's full of the cytoplasm is all fluid-based, mostly water. So we call that intracellular fluid. And then outside the cell, we're typically going to have stuff like interstitial fluid, which is extracellular fluid. <coughs> and the membrane is going to be what, uh, what controls what kind of stuff and how much gets in and out of the cell. All right, we've, we've already seen a little bit of what kind of substances makes up this... Uh, this plasma membrane, right? We talked in the chemistry unit about phospholipids. Right? When we, I probably made a brief mention, said that the phospholipids make a bilayer. So bilayer means two. So the basic structure of the cell membrane of our cells is such. So if this is a phospholipid, okay, it's got a phosphate head and two fatty acid or lipid tails, okay. We use this play off the idea that the phosphate head is hydrophilic or water-loving, and the and the fatty acid tails are hydrophobic or water-hating. Again, this we recognize that fats and water don't mix. So we basically take a whole bunch of those phospholipids and line them up, and we take two rows of them and line them up back to back, and that chemically kind of makes sense because what we have is the hydrophobic water hating slash fats loving tails are both facing inward so you have the tails of this uh, of this layer and the tails of this layer face inward they're both fatty acids they can interact chemically with each other just fine and that works they get held together and if we say this out here at the top is extracellular EC and this is intracellular IC. Remember that both of those places are going to be filled with mostly water, right? So in intracellular we have the cytoplasm and outside we have the, uh, the interstitial fluid. So in both cases we have these water-loving right, hydrophilic he uh, phosphate heads that are going to be the first barrier interacting with those fluids. So it makes perfect sense. <coughs> now, um, the reality is that it's more complicated than that. Okay, so we actually call the cell membrane more of a uh, fluid mosaic. So a mosaic basically is like a pattern with a whole bunch of uh, different uh, things stuck in it. So we can think of the basic makeup of a, of a cell membrane as being looking like this, but the reality is there's all sorts of other stuff kind of jammed in there um, to, to make it, uh, to, to have different uh, purposes as well. So let's see what else that's going to be. Here again, artistic depiction of what that might look like. And these things are all those phospholipids, see with the heads and the tails facing inward. There are other things that are, other fats that are, that are uh, interspersed between those as well. These yellow things are going to be cholesterol. Okay, so the cholesterol molecules are going to be, are, they help to make the cell membrane a little bit more fluid. And then you're going to see a lot of these big purple things, right? These big purple things are proteins. So as much as the, 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 the general structure of the cell membrane is made up of those phospholipids and, and cholesterol, uh, there's going to be lots and lots and lots of proteins that perform different functions, which we're going to see shortly, uh, that are interspersed amongst that basic cell membrane. All right. <coughs> so let's see a little more. So 
about three quarters or so of that membrane, uh, at least the fatty portion of it, is going to be made up of those phospholipids. And like you mentioned, the, uh, um, the nature of them is that they have the, the water-loving hydrophilic heads facing outward and inward, and the, the hydrophobic fatty acid tails that face inward. Um, about 20%-ish cholesterol, okay, uh, which helps uh, stabilize and, and give some, um, some flexible but strong properties to that, uh, to that cell membrane. Uh, and then at 5%, what are called glycolipids, which means that they are um, a combination of fat and carbohydrates. And they serve for a, bu a bunch of different purposes. Um, those numbers, I would not test you on that. That's a useless, that's useless information to try to remember. The point of this slide is to tell you that it's made up, it's a mosaic. It's made up of a bunch of different kinds of uh, substances. Now, um, let's talk next about those big purple things in that diagram, right? The proteins. Uh, so the proteins are going to serve a bunch of different functions, okay? And by mass, they actually make up about half of the, of the membrane of, of, a, of an average cell, which kind of makes sense because they generally tend to be enormous, all right? Now, each protein is going to have a, um, a different function, different purpose, and it's going to be quite specialized to, uh, to perform its, its particular purpose. That's, they get built in a particular way for a particular reason. So some of them are going to be uh, more or less freely moving throughout the membrane, they, so they can kind of float around and change position. Some of them are going to be anchored in place by other, uh, by other proteins, which we're going to see a little bit later. So two primary types of proteins that you might find in a membrane are what are called integral proteins and peripheral proteins. Okay? So I'll give you a visual first. Okay? Uh, if we go back to this. Pretty much, your, um, your integral proteins are going to be ones that are anchored into the membrane itself, okay, that are stuck there. Whereas peripheral proteins are going to be a little bit more loosely attached. Okay? That's the basic, basic difference. Um, by their nature, the way that the proteins are going to, because they're embedded in the cell membrane, which is both hydrophilic and hydrophobic, depending on what parts of it you're talking about, um, the chemical makeup of these proteins is going to vary a lot, but it's going to have to have regions on each that, that make it so that it's able to be stuck within the membrane. Now, like I said, the proteins perform a pile of different functions. Um, they could be, uh, in, you know, the short list that it would include things like uh, transport proteins. So they're either carriers or channels, and we'll see what those mean later on in this lecture. Uh, that allow movement of stuff through the membrane because some things can't freely get through that plasma membrane. Um, they could be receptors, so they could essentially uh, act as um, uh, like, a, like a dock sort of thing on the outside of the cell where things like, um, like hormones can fit in them and then cr uh, initiate a particular cascade of events inside the cell, so it acts like a cell signaling receptor. Uh, or they could just be enzymes. Right? So we know what enzymes do. They, they increase the rate of particular chemical reactions, right? the ones that are called the azes. Um, but uh, they, we, maybe you have a cell that just you need that cell to perform a particular uh, chemical reaction a whole lot. And so you, you build the cell so that the, it has the, the, cell, uh, the um, enzymes built right into the cell membrane so that it's easy for that reaction to continue to occur. Okay, uh, peripheral proteins again the ones ones that are a little more loosely uh, attached to the other proteins to the the integral proteins that are anchored within the cell membrane. Um, we're going to see that uh, later on that there are um, protein filaments that that give like a scaffolding support uh, network uh, inside and outside of cells that kind of anchor them in place so they're not just floating around and changing shape. Um, so they'll often, these proteins will often be anchored to those proteins, and they can perform a pile of different functions as well. Uh, they could be enzymes, uh, they could be for cell communication, they could be for uh, connecting cells together, uh, and a bunch of different, uh, different purposes. Okay, so here's the, the, the broad list of, of what those proteins could do. So there's a couple of these we've seen already. Um, transport, so we'll see a few examples today of transport proteins that allow movement of a particular substance in and out of a cell. You'll, as we'll see, um, those are, they're, they're not, 
they're typically not like global transporters, like if they just let anything through. They're typically very specific. So they're either, they're, there's a specificity of what it allows to cross the cell membrane based on the size of the molecule or the shape of the molecule or the charge of the molecule. So there's certain things that allow through um, and certain things that it won't depending on its exact shape. All right. Um, you said, of course, they can be enzymes. Um, we said they could be receptors. So again, getting into a discussion about uh, the endocrine system and how hormones that are made in one part of the body can have an action on cells somewhere um, completely, in a completely different part of the body. Um, this only happens if the cells that uh, if the cells have a receptor to detect the presence of a hormone. Okay. Proteins can be used to join cells together. They can be used to have cells recognize each other. For example, um, cells of the immune system need proteins like this to be able to, to identify cells and detect whether they belong in the body or whether they are foreign and need to be attacked. Um, and then we have uh, attachment proteins. Proteins are going to anchor uh, into other proteins of the matrix and the support system inside the cell called the cytoskeleton. Um, to essentially create uh, shape and form uh, and give uh, cells um, some rigidity. Okay. Um, there are, of course, you know, we've been talking about tissues where cells are, you know, anchored in place. They're, they're bound in, in tissues and, uh, and the, the majority of cells are going to do that. There are, of course, some examples which we've already seen of cells that are free to move around throughout the body. So we'll have red blood cells, for example, that float freely in the blood plasma, travel all throughout the body in vessels. And we talked briefly about sperm cells. That, of course, by their nature, they're, they're, they're from a different organism. They're supposed to come in and find a particular cell in order to egg to fertilize it. Uh, or um, you have other cells of the blood, like um, uh, white blood cells, immune cells, that by their nature of what they're designed to do, they're constantly needing to patrol the body. So they travel throughout the blood from one region to another. Some can exit blood. They'll go into the tissues. They will essentially, um, they kind of act like security guards in a sense. They're just exploring around, interacting with their environment, and they will identify the cells they come into, whether they belong to self, as in they belong here, they are your own cells, or non-self. So they're something they don't recognize, foreign potential threat and they're programmed to, to initiate some way to, to kill those foreign cells. Okay. All right. What else? So um, when we talk about the plasma membrane, um, the key thing to remember is that this, the, the cell membrane made up, again, mostly of this phospholipid bilayer with our cholesterol, with our glycoproteins, with our proteins is permeable, but it's what's called selectively permeable. So what does permeable mean? What does the, what does the word permeable mean? Yeah, like something passed through it, exactly. So a barrier, it's, it's a barrier that certain things can pass, or that, that things can pass through, right? So a barrier that is selectively permeable means that some things can pass through it and some things can't. And so there are both structural and chemical um, uh, implications of, of, of why, how this works and why certain things can cross the cell membrane when certain things can't, when other things can't, excuse me. <coughs> so we're going to divide up um, transport across the membrane into two broad categories. The first is passive transport, and the second is active transport. And as we'll see, there's a few different kind of subcategories of each of those. Um, but the thing you need to remember for now is the, the difference between the two is passive transport just happens on its own uh, and does not require ATP. So passive transport you can pretty much think of is going to be, it's going to happen naturally according to the natural tendencies of the substances and chemicals as they move around randomly, which means they're going to follow a principle that we talked about in the chemistry unit where they will always move from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. Okay? They do that naturally. It doesn't cost any energy. All active processes, and there are a few different types, need ATP 
uh, input into the system in order to make it work. So it usually means that it's going to take a lot of work to make it happen, or it means that, um, that the, the substances that are being moved across the membrane are being moved in a way that is different than would normally be expected, as in you're intentionally moving them from an area of low concentration to high concentration, which they will never do on their own naturally, so you need to put energy into the system in order to force that to occur. All right, and we'll see what that means a little bit later. <clears throat> All right, so where are we? Okay, so let's talk about passive. Okay, so as I said, um, passive transport means by definition that there, you do not need to put any energy into the system in the form of ATP. Um, we've learned a basic uh, example of, of this already. Uh, we talked about diffusion. So diffusion is uh, solutes or substances will move from an area of high concentration where there are lots of them to an area of low concentration where there are less of them. Um, and this could be, for example, you know, in a basic solution where they're, where they're uh, diffusing and, and kind of dispersing uh, and spreading out as far as they can from one another. Um, or this could be across a membrane with, for example, a, a protein carrier or a channel. Okay, so let's say you have, I, mean, I think we used this example before, but say you have a membrane, right? And there is a, a channel in it. So there is a, um, a hole that fits, let's say uh, it, it perfectly fits. Um, let's use the example of a particular amino acid. Doesn't matter, okay? Amino acids are green. And there we'll say they're green dots. Alright. So there's lots of them on this side of the membrane, and there's not very much of them on the other side. Okay, now this pore in this example is a this protein pores channel is open and it fits that green dot perfectly. So if you allow it to just naturally do what its tendency is to do, then these things will start moving. Across the membrane until there is an approximate equilibrium, an approximate balance on both sides of that membrane. Okay, but that only that only uh, happens if there is the means for them to be able to actually move across that membrane. If, let's say, you have a huge concentration gradient, or you have all of these green dots on one side of the membrane and very few on the other, you would assume the coast, the tendency is they would want to move in, but this carrier doesn't exist. And this, these green dots, these amino acids or whatever we want to call, say they are, have no reasonable way to cross that membrane. It doesn't matter what the gradient is. Okay? If they have no way to get across, then they can't. And so that's why we have specific protein channels and carriers to be able to move the things in and out that we're going to need. Okay, um, filtration uh, is is a similar process. Um, filtration is usually more um, relating to uh, um, to open pores, and so you can think of filtration actually on a more, on a bigger scale, um, where you think about uh, blood vessels. So our smallest blood vessels uh, are are called capillaries. They're basically you take arteries and you send blood to tissue, and the arteries get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until they get to what are called capillaries, which are um, there's a ton of them with a huge amount of surface area, but each individual capillary is very, very thin. It's one cell layer thick, and they tend to be a little bit leaky, so they have kind of holes and pores, so stuff can leak through them. And so as, as stuff moves in and out of capillaries in those capillary beds through those leaky pores, we call that filtration. And we use that kind of, that kind of mechanism in other places in the body too. The kidneys especially kind of operate under that uh, mechanism as well. Discussion for another day. All right. <coughs> so, uh, again, the term that we, or the stuff that we were just talking about, these uh, uh, molecules will, will always want to move uh, down their concentration gradient from an area where they are more highly concentrated to an area where they are uh, less, or less concentrated. And that does not require any energy at all. It is just the natural tendency of how molecules move in solution. So, for example, you know, the visual here would say, you have a beaker of water, you drop something in it, something that's water-soluble, in this case it's a purple dye, it's, it's in the form of a solid pellet, 
And you drop it in, and then you just allow it to start diffusing. And if you watch it over time, it will be spreading from where it's most highly concentrated, which is in this pellet, obviously. It's going to start spreading throughout uh, the, the rest of the, the solution, the water, until it is as evenly distributed, distributed as it possibly can be. All right. So again, our plasma membranes being selectively permeable are going to allow us to control these concentration gradients in some way uh, by dictating through uh, their chemical makeup and through the available transport proteins what can get across and what can't. Okay. Now, clinically, um, I guess the ap an application would be that um, if cells, uh, plasma membranes are not functioning the way they should be, as in there's been physical damage or trauma, then all of a sudden uh, um, things can leak the, the way they wouldn't otherwise normally. So if you have, uh, you have a bunch of cells right, in a tissue, say cells of, nope, cells of, of um, doesn't matter, uh, cells of muscle, right, and some kind of physical force comes in and actually causes enough damage to the cells that the cell membranes break, then you could visualize that they actually, the cells will break open, and everything that's contained within the cells is now going to be free to move out. And they will. They'll diffuse from this open now open container of a cell and start moving out into their immediate vicinity, into the environment. So that's on a small scale. If on a large scale you have the same kind of thing occur with many, many, many cells, um, then you can you can start to have uh, significant problems that arise when that happens. So, for example, if we have um, uh, someone who has a big, um, you know, they get a big road rash, right, or a burn, that's cell damage, right? It is tissue damage the, at the micro scale. That's that's individual cell damage, damaging many, many, many cells. And as those cells break open, um, not only do you not have the, uh, those cells functioning and doing their job anymore, but now everything that was contained in those cells is going to be released. And so with, with burn patients, um, there is a significant need for, um, for fluid and electrolyte replenishment because they're rapidly losing those things that were stored inside those cells. Of course, there are other considerations too, like infection, uh, but... Uh, that would be a kind of a, a visual example of how uh, cells can lose what's contained within them. Yeah. Could that also be an example, like, let's say you get like a, not like a rash, just like a sort of like a cut or a scrape. There's usually a clear liquid. Sure. Um, so it's, that's a little bit different, but but that's that's a it's a great question. Um, so. So let's say, again, you have a tissue, and it's got cells. So let's say, let's say it's skin, or we're talking superficial. Um, outside of all the cells, there is going to be what? What's the fluid called? Interstitial. Interstitial fluid. Good. Okay. So interstitial fluid, um, there is always a regular amount, a normal amount, in any given tissue. But as we know, um, you, we can get something called swelling, right? So edema. So um, I'll, guess, I'll give you another example, and I'll take it back to what, you, what, you're, what you're asking. Either, uh, you ever sprained, has anybody here badly sprained an ankle before? Right. So you roll your ankle, there's, there's some damage to local tissues, and then ankle swells up like a grapefruit. Right. So what is that fluid, and where is it, and where did it come from? Well. I'll give you the short version because I usually teach an entire class on this in pathology classes, but basically um, the fluid that you see in there is similar to the clear weeping fluid that you're talking about in, your, in the cut, right? When tissues are damaged, um, there are essentially cell signaling mechanisms that happen. When you break open cells, okay, or you damage blood vessels superficially, and all these, any, every tissue is going to be permeated with blood vessels. If you damage those cells or blood vessels, the release of the chemicals that are inside them is going to signal the immune system to bring other cells to that area, white blood cells. Okay? And it's also going to do an important job of signaling the local blood vessels, those capillaries we talked about a minute ago, 
to get leaky and to send more blood to them. So now you have more blood sending to, uh, coming to the area. You'll probably recognize this as a little increase in heat, right? Or a little increase in redness to an area where there's damage. And those blood local capillaries get leaky. So now the fluid portion of the blood, okay, not some of the cells, uh, but the, a lot of the fluid portion leaks out into the damaged area. So what essentially what you have is fluid from blood vessels shifts at a much greater rate than usual into the interstitial space. So what is normally a little bit of fluid now becomes a huge amount of fluid. And so the swelling that you actually see accumulate is in that interstitial space around the cells, around the tissues. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. That's also, by the way, why we have a lymphatic system. Okay? I know we probably very briefly talked about the different systems in the body in the first week. Okay? Cardiovascular system is the blood vessels that send blood all around the body. Okay? The lymphatic system is essentially a drainage system. And you drain excess interstitial fluid when things like that happen drain it, clean it up through these filters we call lymph nodes, and then put that fluid back into the blood vessels so that we can recycle it. All right? Okay, so uh, some things are going to be able to get through the, 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 mem the cell membrane easily, and some are not. And being that um, the cell membrane, at least the middle part of it, the, the, the phospholipid uh, tails, or the, lip the, sorry, the fatty acid tails in the inside, are fats. Things that are uh, fat soluble are, are going to more easily be able to diffuse through the cell membranes. So especially small things and things that can dissolve easily in that membrane, no problem. Things that are very small can also pass through somewhat easily. So things like oxygen uh, and carbon dioxide can generally move through membranes quite easily. It's the bigger molecules and the really polar water-soluble molecules that have more difficulty, and we're going to have to have some uh, some measures in place to, to allow them to move through. Okay, so again, for example, things like oxygen, carbon dioxide, some vitamins that are fat-soluble, some small things are going to be able to move through quite easily. Right, so they just go straight through. Um, some don't. So. Um, there is a typo on this slide, um, so we're going to have to correct it here. It sh it'll be wrong in your slides. I just wanted to make sure that we caught it. So this should say certain hydrophilic. Okay, in your slide it says hydrophobic, right? So it should say certain hydrophilic molecules like glucose, amino acids, and ions. Okay, are transported passively down their concentration gradient by mediated facilitated diffusion. So that was this example that I drew here. Okay, so there are protein channels or carriers built into the cell membrane that let's say there you can imagine them as like a tunnel or an opening that certain sized or charged things can just move through them freely and they will do so along their concentration gradient as long as there is an opening for them to be able to, to do so. Okay? Right. The same thing occurs uh, with what are called carriers. So um, instead of, uh, so, so excuse me, I'm sorry. <clears throat> the difference between a channel and a carrier is, is, seems kind of subtle at first, but the channel is basically this open pore that allows things to move through down their gradient. Okay, this would be a good visual here. Versus a carrier, which actually has to physically change shape to allow something to move through. The general concept of how they work is approximately the same, uh, but the actual physical shape and makeup of them is, is a little bit different. Okay, <clears throat> So if you have something um, that, is, uh, that is mostly water-soluble, that has a gradient, that wants to, has a tendency that wants to move either in or out of the cell down its concentration gradient, and there are available transport proteins to let it do so, then it will. Okay, but um, it's going to be limited in how quickly it can move across that membrane based on how many protein transporters are available. All right, so I'll kind of I'll give you uh, an example of, of what that means. 
um, <coughs> in the kidneys. Okay, the kidneys' basic job is to uh, is to take your blood and be constantly filtering it. Okay, and what it does is basically it filters your blood and it creates this substance called filtrate. Right, as it's moving through these functional units called nephrons. Okay? As filtrate passes through these nephrons, uh, which are aligned with cells, it's going to eventually come out the other end and become what we call urine. Okay? However, the, in this process of doing that, we filter the blood, we pass all of what uh, the fluid portion of blood and all the stuff that's dissolved in it into these nephrons to make filtrate, but 99% of it gets absorbed back into the blood. Okay? Otherwise, if that didn't happen, you'd be peeing all day long. Okay? You want to essentially take back what we want to keep and only pee out what you want to get rid of, your concentrated waste products. Now, things like glucose fall into that category. So there's lots of glucose in your blood. Does anybody know how much glucose should be in urine? A lot or a little? Well, it should be zero. There should not ever be glucose, sugar, in your urine. Okay? But it can happen. So say somebody who is diabetic, for example, who has very high blood glucose levels, if your blood glucose is so high that in the process of going through these nephrons, uh, it exceeds the number of transporters that are available to pull it back into the blood, like 100% of it should be able to, if there's so much glucose that there, there's not enough transporters to pull it back in, then it has nowhere else to go and it ends up in the urine. And so if you ever find glucose in the urine on a test, you know that there is a problem. And you can, t you can imply pretty much automatically that the blood glucose levels, if you test them, are going to be super high. Okay? So it's kind of a, 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 an example of, of, of saturation of transporters and, and, and limitations of how quickly things can move. <clears throat> all right, now, <laughs> with our channels, all right? So these, these channels are basically pores. Um, there are two types of channels. Um, the leak channels, which are basically what I was describing here on the board. So they're always open. They're leaky. If, if, uh, if the substance that fits in them is present and has a concentration gradient that it can move down, it will. But there are also channels that look like that, but that are gated. Okay, so uh, it looks like a physical gate has blocked them, so they're, it, they're not always open. Now, it starts to get a little bit more complicated here, but we use gated channels um, in lots of really important physiological processes, especially when we're talking about things like um, uh, action of nerves and muscles. Okay? So the, when we think of um, the visual of a channel having a gate that can either be closed preventing things from moving through it, or open, allowing things to move through it. The control signals that either have that gate open or closed can be either chemical signals or electrical signals. So basically, you can have a situation where um, <laughs> the gate is only open if there is another particular chemical present. So there's, there's uh, um, a, a signaling chemical that keeps it open. And if it's not there, then it will close automatically or vice versa. Or, as we'll see in a little bit, um, the gate will only be open or closed when the environment in the cell is of a particular voltage. Okay, So the, the cell membrane, uh, because it's a membrane, it creates what's called a membrane potential. So there's going to be ions, right? So we know what ions are. They're charged particles that have either positive or negative charges. There's going to be lots of them, right? It's all over the place all the time. And so the sum total overall of the ions inside the cell and outside the cell is not necessarily going to be the same. And if that's the case, if, say, you have a lot of positively charged ions inside the cell and less so outside the cell, now you have an electrical potential or an electrical gradient across that cell membrane. And some of these protein channels will only open or close when there is a particular voltage present. Okay? And I know that seems a little abstract, but um, that is exactly the mechanism how, uh, that, that our nerve cells use to be able to send electrical signals. So I won't go any farther today, uh, but just get the idea in there. Okay? <laughs> we can also have passive movement uh, through osmosis. And osmosis is 
You can think of it it's basically like diffusion, except that you're thinking about water rather than the solutes in water. Um, water, will have, um, water will be able to move through uh, most lipid uh, bilayers because it's very, very small. So even though it's polar, it can sneak through um, a, 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 a mostly fat lipid bilayer. Uh, but there are also cells, there are also, excuse me, not cells, there are also um, protein channels called aquaporins, literally means water hole, right? Water pore, that are specifically built for water molecules. So that's water molecules can easily move back and forth through those pores. And again, there are certain, certain places in the body where that's particularly important, uh, going back to the example of the kidney, for example. The kidney, certain cells of those nephrons need a lot of aquaporins because they're going to be reabsorbing lots and lots of water. Okay? All right. Now, how far along are we? We're almost there. <clears throat> so everything we've been talking about so far, diffusion and osmosis and movement of, of, uh, of substances down their concentration gradient, has all been passive transport, right? There's no energy needed in order to make it happen. It happens automatically. Now, there's a bunch of forms of active transports. And every single type of active transport, if I say something is active transport, you know automatically that it takes at least some energy from ATP in order to make it happen. Right? So it takes input of energy into the system to make it work. All right? So there's two basic types, okay? active transports and vesicular transports. And we're going to briefly look at either one of them. So we have situations here where you want to get something across the cell membrane, either in or out, uh, but the thing you're trying to move is too big. Or uh, it's not fat soluble, so it can't go through the membrane. Or you're trying to move something against its concentration gradient in the opposite direction of how it naturally wants to move. All those situations are going to require energy input into the system in order to make it happen because it just will not happen otherwise. Okay? So we're going to need, in these cases, particular, uh, sorry, uh, first active transport and then vesicular transport. So in active transport, you have to have specific carrier proteins called pumps that are going to make this work. And what you're talking about is moving something against its concentration gradient, so from where it is lesser concentrated, into an area where it's already got lots of that particular substance. And again, this would never happen on its own because it's against the concentration gradient. So there are lots of examples of how this, ha of how this works. But the best known one is what's called the sodium-potassium pump. So let's look at it like this, okay? Okay, so in most of the cells in the body, okay, um, you're going to have the fluid component inside the cell, okay, the intracellular fluid. What's the other name for the intracellular fluid? Cytoplasm. Cytoplasm, good. And you're going to have the extracellular fluid. And we'll, what do we say is the, the term we're using for this, the fluid that's directly outside of, of most cells? It starts with an I. Interstitial fluids, okay? So we have the cytoplasm inside, the interstitial fluid outside. And in those, both those fluids, we're going to have all sorts of of uh, ions dissolved, okay? all sorts of small solutes. Um, two of the big positively charged ions, what's the term for a positively charged ion? Start with the C. Cation, okay? Two of the most important ones in the body are sodium and potassium. Now, the, way to, the thing to remember about this is that sodium is very highly concentrated in the majority of the bodily fluids. It's highly concentrated in blood, and in joint fluid, and in cerebrospinal fluid, and in mucus, and in saliva, and in interstitial fluid. Okay, so basically all the fluids. So I'll say, I'll draw it out here. This is sodium, okay? I'll draw it really big, because there's lots of it in the interstitial fluid, okay? There is sodium in cells as well, but not 
anywhere near as much. So I'm going to draw just a little sodium right there. Okay. Now, we also have potassium. Again, another important cation, positively charged ion. Um, and there is, there is also potassium in the extracellular fluid, like interstitial fluid, but not very much. So I'm going to say, you got a little potassium right there. And we store, generally, lots of potassium inside cells. Okay? So we have a situation where, in a lot of cells, you have lots of sodium outside, a little bit of sodium inside, and lots of potassium inside, and a little bit of potassium outside. So, if you were to have pores that allow movement of, of these solutes, you would assume that sodium is naturally going to want to move from outside to in, right? And potassium is going to want to move from inside to out, right? And that is exactly what happens, except there are reasons why and I won't go into the details because it's more for talk about uh, how muscles and nerves work, but there are reasons why you want to maintain that gradient. You want to make sure that the, the concentration of potassium inside stays high compared to outside, and sodium stays high outside compared to inside. So that's where the sodium-potassium pump comes in. Okay. So basically, we use a sodium-potassium pump to pump sodium out and potassium in, which is exactly the opposite of what you would expect to normally happen. So because we're moving against the concentration gradient, we have to use ATP in order to do so. Okay? So basically, a ton of your cells all day long, every day, are constantly spending energy to maintain that particular gradient. Okay? But because they do so, costs, well, because they're doing it, it costs energy. Okay? The other type of active transport right, that requires energy is vesicular transport. So that the word that's, that's important to understand here is what a vesicle is. Right? So we'll talk a little bit more about this next week in, the, in the, um, uh, the rest of the cell lecture. But a vesicle is basically, it looks like a tiny little particle that's got a, uh, that's got a, uh, a membrane that encapsulates it. So it's kind of like a cell, sort of, but very, very small, and it can be found inside of cells themselves. Okay? So we use vesicles to basically move things in and out of cells. And it's, they're, they're, I say they're kind of like cells in that the membrane that makes up the vesicle can often be made up of the, uh, a membrane from a cell itself. Okay, so basically you're taking a cell and you're pinching off a piece of the membrane to, a, to create a smaller membranous encapsulated ball called a vesicle. Okay? So it's a way that we can move things inside of cells and it's a way that we can uh, take things and move them out of cells. So maybe a visual will help. Okay? So in vesicular transport where you're making or using vesicles, right, we have two basic types. You have endocytosis and exocytosis. So endocytosis is anything that's going to bring something into the cell, and exocytosis means you're going to take a substance and make it leave a cell. Now, there is a little subcategory there. Within endocytosis, where you're taking something into a cell, there are two options. One is phagocytosis, and the other is pinocytosis. Okay? And if you know what a phagocyte is, you'll probably recognize that word. What does phagocytosis mean? Phagocytosis means cell eating. Phago means eat. Okay? So this means basically a cell membrane is taking a, um, a big substance and it's eating it. It's taking it into itself. Okay? Pinocytosis is really similar, but pinocytosis means cell drinking. So the cells are essentially taking a, a certain amount of fluid into themselves with a bunch of small little substances in that fluid. Okay? So here the visual will hopefully make a little bit of sense. All right? This is phagocytosis. So here we have a particular, don't worry about these little purple things, the false feet, that's too much detail, it doesn't matter. But in this example we have um, this big red thing 
want, we want to get it into the cell. Okay? It's way too big to move through any, to go through the membrane on its own, and it's way too big to have a transporter to move it. So we say, okay, well, let's just push it into the membrane itself. So it actually pushes into the membrane. The cell membrane accepts it, folds back in on itself, and creates a little vesicle. So it creates a little encapsulated vesicle that contains this red thing and moves it into the cell. Okay? That's phagocytosis, which is a form of endocytosis because it's coming into the cell. Okay? Pinocytosis is similar, right? Visual here hopefully helps. Stuff from the outside of the cell needs to get inside. It doesn't have transporters or, or, or to, to move it, or it can't go through the membrane itself. So we pinch off a little piece of the membrane. We create this encapsulated vesicle made of the cell membrane that now contains a bunch of fluid plus a bunch of little substances that, we're, that we've now got inside the cell. So it's a, that other form of endocytosis moving it into the cell called pinocytosis or cell drinking. Okay, do you see why they're named cell eating versus cell drinking? Okay, bigger substance in the first one versus uh, smaller with more fluid in the second. Either way, they both create these vesicles which are now inside the cell containing the stuff that you wanted to bring in, uh, which is why they're called vesicular transport. Now, vesicular transport, remember, requires ATP. So in order for the, uh, for the cell membrane to fold in and pinch off this vesicle, there needs to be ATP input into that system. Okay? Um, and this is exocytosis. So it's a very, very, very uh, zoomed-in image uh, of a vesicle that was made inside the cell that's trying to release stuff out of the cell. And we're going to talk about uh, how that happens or the kinds of organelles that make that happen next week in the rest of the lecture on the cell. Um, so basically, a situation where there's a vesicle made inside, it contains stuff that we want to leave the cell, so the opposite of what we just described happens. It's like pinocytosis here, except for instead of coming into the cell, that vesicle made inside the cell merges with the cell membrane and then ejects its contents into the surrounding area. So exocytosis, out of the cell. All right. Two more slides, and that's it. And this is something we've kind of already touched on. So um, all cells will have or, uh, some type of what's called resting membrane potential. So this goes back to the idea that we uh, were briefly discussing that there will be lots and lots and lots of stuff dissolved in both the intracellular fluid and the extracellular fluid. And some of those things that are dissolved in that fluid are charged particles that have a charge. So cations for positively charged things and anions for negatively charged things. Um, so the sum collective total of all the charge of everything on one side of the cell membrane, so say inside the cell, versus the sum total of the stuff that's immediately on the outside of the cell membrane, extracellularly, the difference between those two, right? So there's going to be a, a charge difference, and that's a, a, what's called a potential difference. So that is what's called the resting membrane potential. It's the difference in voltage based on the sum total of electrical charge inside and outside the cells. Okay? Now, we're not going to get into any more details about what number that's going to be like, or why just yet, because that's, again, a discussion that's better, served, better suited for uh, talking about the nervous system and the muscular system. Uh, but just understand for now that it does exist. Okay? And again, if you go back to um, the sodium-potassium pump idea, this contributes to that. Okay? And it contributes to it because there's a second thing going on. Right? I said that there's lots of sodium outside, little inside. Lots of potassium inside, a little bit outside. So we're expending ATP to push potassium out, uh, sorry, to push potassium in and sodium out. So it's against its membrane. So the first thing that that accomplishes is it continues to create this drive, this, this, uh, this gradient for those substances to want to keep moving. Okay? But the second thing it does is it contributes to the resting membrane potential. Because if you remember, sodium and potassium are both cations. They're both positive one charge. Okay, so that doesn't matter yet. 
but it matters when you realize that the sodium potassium pump doesn't move sodium and potassium equally. Okay? Every time you spend one ATP to make this pump work, it pumps three sodium out and only brings two potassium in, which means that every time it works, you're creating a charge difference. So you're, you're essentially creating a, a, a situation where there's more positive charge outside the cell than inside the cell. Okay? So the, these pumps are, are constantly, 24 hours a day, contributing to this electrical difference inside and outside cells as well. Okay? I know that's kind of a, a weird place to leave it, but unless we want to get into a really long discussion, which I'm certain that you don't, we're not going to go any deeper into that. Okay? Whoever teaches you neurology will do that. Okay? That's it for today. So the, next, the rest of the discussion is on the insides of cells, cytoplasm, the organelles, that kind of stuff, and we'll do all of that next week. So before I cut it off, does anyone have any questions? Yes, yeah, exactly. So we just we say broadly that uh, everything inside the cell is intracellular. In, in most cells, we're going to call that cytoplasm. You can break it down into other things, but cytoplasm is basically going to be the fluid inside the cell plus all of the organelles. Yeah? And then the extracellular fluid and the uh, interstitial fluid, is the same thing? Uh, yes and no. So technically, everything outside of the cell is extracellular fluid. Mm -hmm but the fluid that's immediately outside of a particular cell is the interstitial fluid. So within a tissue, but outside of the cells. Okay? All right. Very good. I'll see you guys next week.